Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. One of uh, my heroes of the Christian faith is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've dropped his name a, a few times here at the Vine. And you might know something about him. He, he was a, a pastor and teacher in Germany <clears throat> during the rise of the Nazi party. And his name was put on the Gestapo's enemies list when he spoke out against Adolf Hitler in a 1933 radio broadcast. And a couple years later, 1935, Bonhoeffer was asked to lead a, a small underground seminary, one that was below the radar of the Gestapo, essentially an illegal seminary. And there were 25 young pastors living in this makeshift housing in the town of Finkenwald. And Bonhoeffer accepted the call. And uh, five years later, a year after the Gestapo discovered the seminary and closed it down, Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a short book about the life that they had shared together in that underground seminary. And the title of the book is Life Together. Uh, Listen to the words that Bonhoeffer used to frame the value that he placed on Christian community. So between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by a gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in visible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, The sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. They remember, as the psalmist did, how they went with the multitude to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us that the time still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. You know, I read that little book, Life Together, 45 years ago, and I've read it a number of times since. I I required the students in a class that I'm teaching right now at Fuller Seminary to read it, and and for many, it's their first introduction to Bonhoeffer's work. And his words about Christian community have always been significant to me, but even more so this very day than in the past. Over the last year, there have been voices all around us on news media, social media, talk shows, you name it. And these voices have made claims about worship gatherings based on all kinds of views. But I think that Bonhoeffer's right, that true Christian community comes to us only by the grace of God, as a gift to us because we belong to God. And so we take these very first steps today toward meeting together in person, and we receive this as God's gift by his grace. So let's pray. 
God, our Father, we say thank you for the gift that is this community of your people. And Lord, we say thank you because it is your gift of grace that comes to us. And it comes to us from your love and your care because you are our good shepherd. Amen. Well, the, <clears throat> the 23rd Psalm that we both sang and heard read to us today is, is incredibly beautiful and it's short. <laughs> of all the Psalms, it's a really short Psalm. It sort of has a kinship with, uh, with the Lord's Prayer, which is also somewhat brief. Uh, but both are, are profound in their insights and, and, their, and the imagery that you see there. And when you read the 23rd Psalm very carefully, you realize that it never once speaks of the past. It speaks of the present. It focuses on what God is doing in real time. I mean, think about this. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He restores my soul. I fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table. You anoint my head. My cup overflows. This is all real-time, present language. And it's only at the end of the psalm, after marveling at God's gracious care, that the psalmist then looks ahead and makes the claim, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Psalm 23 just sort of seems to echo in Jesus' words that we heard today from the Gospel of John. Like the psalm, Jesus speaks really about the present as he reflects on the care that he has for his followers. So he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. I know my own. I have other sheep. Well, you know, if you've read through the Bible a few times, <clears throat> as some have, you know that the image of the shepherd is not unusual to, to be found in Scripture. Uh, kings and other leaders are quite frequently referred to as shepherds who may or may not be leading the people well. And even other ancient cultures in that part of the world would, would sometimes refer to their own territorial gods as shepherds. Well, the, the people hearing these words from Psalm 23, especially the very first time, would have certainly uh, appreciated the metaphor because a shepherd, while a rather dirty, demanding, and low-paying job, the shepherd was to be constantly attentive to the sheep. The shepherd could not let down. Sheep were always in danger from predators. Uh, they had a tendency to wander off and get lost and find themselves in a ravine or something. And, and if one could even fall over and not be able to get up on their own strength. So the shepherd had to always be on the job. And, of course, if you're going to use the metaphor of the shepherd to refer to leaders and to God and to Jesus, then you do sort of have to extend the metaphor to people as sheep. Now, you do not want to go too far with this one. Um, because sheep are not known to be particularly bright, and, and they're not usually able to take care of themselves real well. It, it's not really a great image for, for boosting someone's self-esteem, right? So be careful there. But, but really, the important part of the image is really more the shepherd. And Jesus portrays himself as the good shepherd, one who is contrasted to the hired hand, the one who just 
abandons the flock at the first sign of a wolf and, and decides he'll go find a job where he doesn't run the risk of being eaten by predators. But the, the shepherd doesn't do that. The shepherd stays. The shepherd stays even in the face of danger. The hired hand will always see his role as temporary and, and will turn from it when things get scary or when there's a, a better offer set on the table. But not so the shepherd. Because being a shepherd isn't just a job for the shepherd. It's a vocation. It's not just what the shepherd does. It's who the shepherd is. Care for the sheep occupies the shepherd's life and had probably occupied the lives of the shepherd's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on. The shepherd hangs in there in fine weather and in harsh weather. He, he sticks it out when times are good and when times are difficult. Jesus is a shepherd in the way that God the Father is a shepherd. God seeks the best for his people, and he remains with them regardless of the circumstances, and Jesus does likewise. Jesus is also the kind of shepherd who is not limited to one single flock. Uh, there are others, Jesus says, maybe pointing ahead to the Gentiles who will soon come to faith, or perhaps to, to other Jewish folk who will come to recognize him as their Messiah, or even those who will believe in Jesus in the days and years to come which would include people like us. And it is for the sake of these people, for the sheep, that Jesus lays down his life. Now, of course, we know that he will literally do that soon when he dies on the cross. But in the Gospel of John, that isn't going to happen for another nine chapters. And so at, at this point in the story, Jesus is busy. He is, he is preaching, and he is healing, and he is casting out demons. He is also stirring up the religious leaders who are mad at him and claiming that he's a demon. I mean, th these particular group of leaders felt like they were right about everything, and because they were right, anything Jesus had to do was wrong, just by default. They're, they're a bit like wolves, these scribes and Pharisees, who, who just seem to want to gobble up the hearts of people with their legalism and their harsh condemnations about people who they think don't measure up to their standards of righteousness. But when they show up, these, these pharisaical wolves, Jesus doesn't leave. He, he doesn't, doesn't cut and run. He's the good shepherd, and he puts his life on the line for the sake of the sheep in his care. And he knowingly puts himself at risk before the power structures of the day, fully aware of what they are able to do to him. And even with the knowledge and the anticipation of danger, he continues his work. He keeps caring for the sheep. You know, John, who wrote this gospel, made other contributions to the New Testament through some letters. And in his letter that we call 1 John, he captures some of the gospel language and applies it to the people that he's addressing in the letter. He, he's calling the people to love one another in community and to do so as evidence of the love of God that has been poured out to them. And he writes these words. We know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Well, you know, there have certainly been times 
throughout history when people have put themselves at risk for the sake of others. I mean, referring back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he was initially arrested and imprisoned because he was helping some Jewish people get over the border out of Germany and into Switzerland. Uh, it was later when the Gestapo learned that Bonhoeffer was actually part of the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, big story there, um, that's when he was, uh, he was executed. That was the basis upon which he was executed. So there have been people that have literally laid their lives down for the sake of others. And somehow John calls the people to do that. Now, I would like to be able to say that I would lay down my life for you, that I would die for you, but given our context today, I'm just not sure how much good it would do you. I mean, there might be some who would start singing that great old hymn, I'll be dad, glad when you're dead, you rascal you. There, there could be that. But outside of that little moment, things would just sort of carry on as usual, except without me. But, but there really is a way that we lay down our lives for one another. We, we set our lives down. We, we lay them aside for the sake of others in the family of faith. We, we open our ears and our hearts to one another, even setting aside our own preferences at times, our, our own conveniences, and we do that in order to care for others. Uh, if you think about it, the Christian life is full of ways that we're called to lay our lives down. Uh, think about forgiveness, for example. Um, in forgiveness, we, we lay down our right to hold things against another person. Uh, in, in generosity, we lay down our right to keep our resources to ourselves. Even in gathering together in worship, like we're doing right now, is, is a way that we lay down the opportunity to be off doing something else. In our willingness to be open and to listen to one another and be present to one another, we even lay down our right at times, to be right. And we, and we learn how to see things from new perspectives. I remember as a young person some family gatherings where the conversations seemed to be dominated by the ones in the family who always insisted that they were right. Now, being right was a strong value in my family, and differing views were either considered to be competitive bids or declarations of war. And uh, points were rarely conceded, and arguments were often reduced down to absurd rationalizations in order to stand firm on whatever your thing was. Now, I, I love my family. I, I love those old family gatherings for some crazy reason. But it, it wasn't really the best environment where, where a person could learn about civil discourse, <laughs> you know. Um, there wasn't much in the way of laying aside our notions in order to care for others by humble listening. If only they would have known that I was right. <laughs> well, uh, you know, St. Paul had to address this kind of thing with the people in the church in Corinth that he wrote to. The people were having these disagreements about whether or not it was acceptable to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, pagan idols. Now, there were some in the church who recognized that the idols were, in essence, nothing, nothing to be concerned about. So eating meat that had been sacrificed to them was just really not a big deal. Nothing to worry about. Um, but there were others who were scandalized 
by those idols and felt that they could never eat tarnished meat. And so Paul was concerned that those who had claimed to be liberated from idolatrous superstitions were wounding the tender consciences of the brothers and sisters in the faith, but just not caring about their convictions. Uh, And he was even so bold to claim, when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul told the meat eaters to lay their liberty aside for the sake of their friends. I mean, it was fine to eat meat. You just didn't have to buy it at the discount idol store or wherever you got such meat. Well, laying down our lives for one another is really just about living in the way of Jesus, isn't it? This Jesus who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross put aside all kinds of things. He, he put aside the comforts of home. He, he put aside the, the, the predictability of a settled village life, even set aside the possibility of fame and, and notoriety. And he gave himself for the sake of others, even gave himself for the sake of the world. And while we believe that Jesus touches our lives in very personal ways, often in private and even in isolated settings, quite often it is through God's people that his ministry is made evident, a ministry that calls us to lay down our lives. You know, I, I imagine our, our love and our care for one another to be, to be two things at once. Uh, first of all, it, it's a reflection of the love and the care that comes from Jesus. But it's also a beacon that shines its light into the world. Our shared life is to bring joy to us, but it's also to bring hope to the world that our love for one another will draw others to the love of God. So we are able to show others that the love that comes from God is a love that endures in both good times and in difficult times. Jesus, as our good shepherd, is more than just the one who keeps us properly herded in our pens, keeping us safe from outside interference. Because unlike an actual shepherd who is a completely different species from the sheep, Jesus shares a kinship with us. In caring for us, he's he's forming and he's shaping us as his people, as, as a people who will not only experience his touch, but who will also bring his care to others and to do so in so many different ways. Well, we start that care within our shared life, within the life of the church. In in mutual love and care, we demonstrate the love and the care of Jesus, our good shepherd. You know, even as we know and remember and recognize that This last year has been incredibly difficult, and in many ways it still continues to be difficult. It would be good for us to recognize that that Jesus, our good shepherd, has never stopped being attentive to us. It, It would be very good for us, I think, in the days to come to reflect on how Jesus has continued to love and care for us during this season. And to ask ourselves, in in what new ways have we learned as as we've had to lay our lives down? 
about the ways that Jesus has still been forming and shaping us. Because our good shepherd never gives up. And he never gives up on us. He never abandons his flock. And he has never, even once, abandoned us.